Thank you for the, the introduction, Father Aaron. How are you all? I'm always delighted to be here. Um, as Father Aaron said, this is a church that's been long in coming. Um, and so I'm delighted to preach on Psalm 40 today. I feel like there's a lot of feedback right now. Okay. A good preacher always gets feedback. No, it's after the sermon, after the sermon. All right. I'm, I'm excited to preach about Psalm 40 today. Why? Because Psalm 40 is about waiting. I'm not going to quote the U2 song. I'm not going to sing that. Um, and many of you may not know my wife, Lindsay, and I that well. She's somewhere here today. I won't make her stand up. But some of you know us really well. And you know that we have just recently passed through a long season of waiting for a home. When Lindsay and I got the news that we were expecting our third, we were delighted. We were excited. And in our enthusiasm and our eagerness for our growing family, we also knew this was going to be a game changer. Not just because we'd be outnumbered now, three to two, <laughs> but we were going to outgrow our home. And we had lived in our home at that time about eight years. This apartment had been so significant. So many milestones happened in this apartment. Graduate school, friends and fellowship. We brought both of our daughters home from the hospital to this apartment. God had truly blessed this home. He had blessed us through this home. And so now, we knew that God was going to have to bring us a new home. Meanwhile, our call to the city was kind of intensifying. You know, Ten years prior, when we had gotten engaged as a couple, we felt called to the city. And at that point, as we were waiting for number three, we were laboring with many others here to help start a church in the city. So we began looking for a home in the city, even before baby was due. And we didn't do this halfway. My wife does nothing halfway. And we turned Chicago upside down looking for a home. Weeks went by. Weeks turned into months. Before you know it, six months. Baby boy shows up early. Thanks, Ethan. We bring baby boy back to the apartment in their home. We say, oh, God, we got it, God. That's nice. It was nice what you did there. All three children came back to this home. We get that. So where's, where's the next home? How long, oh, Lord? The nights start getting really long. There's crying. So much crying. <laughs> Most of it's done by Ethan, but not all of it. <laughs> Ethan's sleeping in the hallway. Our neighbor no longer gets to sleep in on the mornings, lives below us. Lindsay's just not sleeping. We found out later that our neighbor actually, while we were waiting for our home, started looking for a new home himself. It was painful. It was painful. And you start crying out, how long are we? And we weren't passive, right? We're out there, and we're, six months go by again. We're getting beat by the Chicago market. I can tell you that discouragement set in. Doubts start showing up. We begin to wonder, well, did God really call us to the city? I mean, if there's no home for us. And if there's no home, maybe there's no call. Were we wrong? We've been waiting for a church plant for like 10 years. Were we wrong about that? How long, oh Lord, how long? And then it got really hard. Dislodged from our apartment, we took a sublet. And in the span of four months, we moved our stuff four times. And many people here in this room struggled with us, helped us, carried us. Some actually carried my junk four times, literally. And everyone's saying, how long? Some are just saying, oh, Lord, how much stuff? 
There's blessings on those people. So much of our life involves waiting, doesn't it? It's everywhere. It's in everything. I'll bet you've never had a day without waiting. It's one of the major themes in the history of God's people. Waiting. It's no fun. We don't like it. It's so uncomfortable. It generates an entire spectrum of emotions and intensity. Waiting for dinner makes us impatient, sometimes grouchy. Waiting for the bathroom can become uncomfortable. Waiting on children upstairs in the ministry can be irritating. Waiting for the bus is dull or in Chicago, cold. Waiting for a soulmate can be discouraging. Waiting for health or healing can be despairing. Waiting for justice can be disillusioning. Some of you are just waiting for the sermon to be over. (laughs) But waiting can feel like forever. And I sat with this idea for a little bit, this idea of waiting, and I realized that waiting can sometimes be synonymous with suffering. It can be a form of suffering. And suffering, by the way, is always waiting for relief. And this is where I think the Lord wants to speak to us today. This is where Psalm 40 starts, with David waiting. And he's talking to us about his experience waiting. So as as we speak and think today, think about something you're longing for or waiting for, possibly some area of pain or suffering that's not yet found relief. Okay? And I'm going to divide today's message just into two parts. Try to keep it simple. First part, Psalm teaches us that how we wait in life is crucial to our life and that waiting bears fruit. Those are the two parts. And so most often, we just think of waiting as this obnoxious, wasteful thing. It's lost time, right? In the little things, you're waiting in line. Or it's thwarting our purposes and our goals in life in the big things, like in relationships or in suffering. It's an obstacle that must be overcome as we head towards satisfaction or realization. It's as if someone pressed pause on life and our story stops. All we can think about is what we're waiting for. And when we're waiting for these significant things, future spouses, healing, safety, the temptation is to try to end the pain and to prematurely end our waiting. But David instructs us to do otherwise. His first comment, verse 1, I waited patiently for the Lord. Now, many commentators actually translate this differently, and they say, in my waiting, I waited. I love that. (laughs) In my waiting, I waited. If you're like me, whenever you're waiting for something, you start talking about it. Oh, I'm so tired of waiting. You get this kind of meta-narrative moment where you're like, I am waiting. And then everyone's tired of hearing from you about your waiting. But David says, "Uh uh-uh, be patient. Wait in your waiting. Don't step outside of it. And notice, too, that this is personal. David knows that waiting is personal. He's not waiting on lady luck. He's not waiting on circumstances to change. He's not waiting on people. He's not waiting on self-actualization. He's waiting on God himself. He waited patiently. And this is, this is a clue, actually. If someone has to wait patiently, it means it didn't last a short amount of time. This is a reality that is important to grasp. He's praying and he's waiting for God and he did not find relief quickly. 
Now, God loved David, right? What does God say about David? A man after my own heart. And David still had to learn to wait. If relief does not come quickly to you and you're waiting, it does not mean God is displeased with you. How do I know this? Look at the very next clause. He inclined to me and heard my cry. God is not only listening, but he's bending down to you. This must frame our whole thinking about the psalm and how we understand about waiting. But waiting is the pits. Does anyone use that phrase anymore? My dad does. He's like, ah, it's the pits, son. This is where it comes from, I think. Verse 2, he drew me up from the pit of destruction out of the miry bog. We are down in the pit in our waiting. Remember that this is poetic language, so the Psalms are poetry. So don't skip over imagery. This is a picture that, I really, that we really need to internalize. Think pit. Think Joseph. Think him being cast down in a hole by his brothers to be sold as a slave. Think abandoned well. Dug so deep that you're past dirt, you're into clay, and water is seeping in. Think slaves and prisoners kept in dark confines with the oppressive stink and filth from the lack of air and light. Can you imagine yourself there? Does anxiety and despair well up inside your chest at the thought of being left behind in the pit? This is where God reaches out, is inclining to you to set you upon solid, secure rock and set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. What David is showing us as he keeps going is that we're faced with a choice when, we're, when we wait. There's two paths that we can take. Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust, who does not turn to the proud, to those who go astray after a lie. When we're in the pit of suffering, waiting, we can take one of two paths out. On the one hand, we can trust God where there will be some blessing, right? Blessed is the man or woman who, trusts, who makes the Lord his trust. Or we can take the other path that's paved with lies and fueled by pride, who does not turn to the proud, to those who go astray after a lie. What does this mean and what has pride and lies have to do with this, for that matter? Well, there are some profound examples of this in Scripture. Even the great heroes of faith can make the wrong choice in our waiting. Take, for example, Abram in Genesis 15 and 16. This is where we learn that God has promised Abram and Sarai that they will have innumerable offspring, right? It's just dramatic conversations. Like, can you count the stars? No, you won't be able to count your offspring. They go to Canaan. Ten years go by. No boy. No baby. Keep in mind, God specifically told Abram, it will be a biologic heir. Okay, this is not adoption. This is not going to be one of your servants that he was worried about. Ten years. Can you imagine the longing, the pain, the disappointment? How could they not doubt? Abram is 86 years old in chapter 16. Sarai's aging, and there's no pregnancy. They're waiting to become parents, to be a mom and a dad. This is not an uncommon experience, I think. They're in the pit. Doubt and despair set in, and Abram and Sarai 
try to seek a way out, to forge their own way. They forget the truth God declared to them. It was a slight twisting of truth, maybe. Perhaps, mm, maybe, maybe, maybe uh, the air will come for me, but maybe it'll be a different woman and not you, Sarah. It's like a half-truth, right? That's what lies usually are, not some sort of blatant, obvious thing, but like a slight twisting, like a half-truth. I mean, they literally got this half right. Abram, not Sarai. He forces the, Abram forces the issue with tremendous pain and suffering that flow from that decision. Abram waits another 14 years before God seals his covenant and Abram becomes Abraham and Isaac is born. When we wait, we have to choose. We consciously must choose to trust God. The feelings and the emotions can be overwhelming. The outcome of our waiting must be left in the hands of God. In your waiting, wait. But how do you keep going? Just keep reading. Focus on God. Verse 5, You have multiplied, O Lord my God, your wondrous deeds and your thoughts toward us. None can compare with you. I will proclaim and tell, them, tell of them, yet they are more than can be told. David's not changing the subject. This is the subject. You're waiting on God. If you want to know who he is and what he is up to, then simply look at what he has done for you previously or what he has done in the lives of others. His character is demonstrated throughout history, throughout the history of his people, and when we turn our thoughts and hearts toward God in our waiting, inside of it, our hearts begin to move away from the pit of despair. The stormy emotions can be quelled, and we can say no to the lies that would pull us away from trusting in God. And up until now in the psalm, David's been speaking to you and to me. And now he's, all of a sudden, he's speaking directly to God. We're praying. This is the final thought on how to wait. Prayer. If you are suffering and you're waiting, if you're waiting for your suffering to end, if you're struggling to trust the Lord, if you're in that emotional pit of waiting, pray. Pray and suddenly find your feet on solid ground. Okay, so prayer is the key to how we wait. It's also the first fruit that comes from waiting. So we're into part two now. Remember I said that waiting will bear fruit. Well, this is the first fruit. The conversation that starts when you're waiting, that's the first fruit. Conversation with God. When you're waiting for relief, aren't you prompted to pray? I know nothing jumpstarts my prayer life like despair when I feel bad. And it's, it's embarrassing to say, why isn't your prayer life always there? But nothing will get it going faster than a feeling of despair. It's okay. We often forget that we're poor and needy. But as King David reminds us all the way in verse 17, this is a king, we are never not poor and we are never not needy. And when we see that, we find ourselves in prayer. But there's a hidden fruit that comes from our waiting before the Lord. As David continues this dialogue with God, he writes prophetically about Jesus as he tries to make sense of his waiting. Look at verse 6. It begins one of the great prophetic passages in the Bible. David currently lives in a sacrificial system, a system dictated by God. And yet as he cries out, he says, God, you don't even want this. He expounds on this more profoundly in Psalm 51, but it's this passage that Hebrews chapter 10 quotes and tells us 
The description here is about the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And why does this come up? Why does this come up in David's waiting? Why is David talking about sacrifices? Well, just as we can be tempted to solve our waiting by our own strength and force it, we talked about with Abram, we can be tempted to start negotiating with God. We mistakenly think that God is waiting for us to be more holy or more spiritual, perhaps. We aren't going to force it like Abram. Instead, we'll just try harder to please God, win his favor, and perhaps we'll get a get-out-of-jail-free card. Here's what I mean. You remember King Saul? King Saul, the first king of Israel, chosen by God, anointed. In chapter 13 of 1 Samuel, this story is Saul and his men that are now his army. Army is probably a bit generous here. These are Israelites that he gave weapons to. And they find themselves outgunned, outmanned by a well-trained Philistine army, and they are on the run. Listen how desperate this is. This is a direct quote. They're so overwhelmed and afraid that the people hid themselves in caves and in holes and in rocks and in tombs and in cisterns. This goes on for a week. I mean, this is literally what we're talking about. The people are hiding in pits. What does Saul do? He tries to win God's favor by offering sacrifices that only a priest was allowed to do. He tries to reduce waiting upon the Lord as a form, to a formulaic process. Oh, well, this is how it works. He arrogantly and disobediently offers prescribed sacrifices to God instead of waiting for Samuel, who's the prophet, the prophet and the priest. Listen to this. This is, this is Saul. I have not sought the favor of the Lord, so I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. And Samuel said to Saul, you have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God, but now your kingdom shall not continue. How easy it is to mistake that we can control God or control our situation. We cannot. Faithful waiting always requires obedience, submitting our will to the will of the Father. David shows us that we wait in vain or we sacrifice in vain, vain ritual, unless we trust in the Lord to deliver us. And the key is Jesus, right? This psalm is about waiting, but more importantly, it's about Jesus. The deepest meaning of this psalm is that Jesus once and for all delivered each and all by his total and complete obedience to the will of God. Verse 8, I delight to do your will, O God. Your law is within my heart. Don't miss this. Did God ever want sheep's blood? I mean, that was clear to David. What God wants is faithfulness. And it's so much easier to remain faithful when everything's going well, when life is grand and we're not waiting for anything. It's much harder to be faithful when you're waiting or when you're suffering. So my recommendation is when you find yourself in the pit, bury your head in Scripture. Let it fill your heart with God's word. The faithful always allow Jesus to enter into their waiting, letting the word of God set the tone and timber of their waiting. When you're faced with waiting, when you find yourself in the pit, some of the most profound intimacy you can have with Jesus is there. This is the hidden fruit that comes from waiting. 
When you're in the dank, dark, miry clay, the rock comes to you. In fact, he's been waiting for you. David confidently reminds us that he's not going to abandon you. As for you, O Lord, you will not restrain your mercy from me. Your steadfast love and your faithfulness will ever preserve me. He has you in your waiting. And so waiting ceases to be wasted time. It ceases to be a pause. It's no longer something that you have to power through. Instead, it becomes a place, a place that does not imprison us, but allows us to experience the freedom and joy that comes from following Christ, the life that's born out of faithful obedience during painful waiting is rich. Waiting actually almost becomes a spiritual discipline, a proactive posture of seeking God. Look at verse 16. But may all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love your salvation say continually, great is the Lord. I skipped something, didn't I? I jumped right over verses 12 through 15. If you look at that, it'd be kind of nice to avoid this portion. You know, the part about evils encompassing me, iniquities overtaking me, my heart failing, those who seek to snatch my life away. What this portion tells us is that when we wait, we're vulnerable. We're vulnerable to doubts. We're vulnerable to fears, to enemies, the enemy. We're vulnerable to lies. So we want to force our way out. We want to do everything in our power to end this waiting. But that's just it. We don't have any power. So then we can start to suspect, oh, we must have misheard God. Or perhaps God isn't hearing us. Has he forgotten me? We can start to look around and think that maybe others are judging us. Maybe they think less of us. And we can start to experience shame. We get overwhelmed by our circumstances and we can turn to old sin habits or we can just simply let go of what God has promised us. Lindsay and I felt this at moments during those 18 months, tempted to put an end to our waiting and disregard the call to be here. At times we wondered, had we heard correctly? And the longer we waited, the harder it was to trust. We began to doubt that what we thought had been a clear call to the city. The Christ set our family on a firm foundation. He met us in scripture, in prayer, and through the local body, this church. You see, Christ is manifest through his church. And as we struggled to wait faithfully, people in this church waited with us. Didn't matter that we were talking about our home, they waited with us. And they helped us recount God's faithfulness until he delivered us. And the joy of our home has been a shared joy with these people. I have told the glad news of deliverance in the great congregation. Behold, I have not restrained my lips, as you know, O Lord. I have not hidden your deliverance within my heart. I have spoken of your faithfulness and your salvation. I have not concealed your steadfast love and your faithfulness from the great congregation. This is the testimony that only comes from honestly suffering. If we don't share with one another that we are suffering, waiting before the Lord, we will miss out on the great testimony of his work in each other's lives. In our seasons of waiting, we can grow to know God more deeply 
We're invited into deeper intimacy with Jesus and with each other. And the fruit will be evident. So we can wait confidently and patiently for the Lord. This is how we get to verse 16, where it reads, Great is the Lord, which is probably better translated from what I read, magnify the Lord. It's not that we make God bigger, that's impossible, but our perception of Him gets bigger. That's what magnification means. Our lives, our suffering, our waiting on the Lord allows others to perceive the greatness of God. When we find ourselves waiting, do what David did. Recount how the Lord has rescued you in the past. In one sense, the waiting in verse 2 is not ending. David's entering into the waiting, that place of waiting. So don't only try to seek a solution to your waiting. Chiefly seek God himself and rest in the knowledge of who he is and what he has done. He's waiting for you to seek him in your waiting. You are in his thoughts. Does it surprise you that of the nine attributes listed as the fruit of the Spirit, right? So now we're jumping to Galatians. There's nine, right? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. Four out of the nine have to do with waiting. Self-control, faithfulness, peace, patience. How you wait in life matters immensely in your Christian life. I cannot promise how or when the Lord will bring relief to you, but I do know he will meet you. David describes it like this. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. This is the lasting fruit that comes from waiting. You will be brought out of a place of waiting to a place of praise and rejoicing that will cause others to do the same. We wait for him. He inclines to us and hears us. He sends us Jesus in our waiting, and we are rescued, transformed. This is not passive. This is proactive, yet receptive. There is a blessing to all who wait patiently upon the Lord. If you find yourself in a season of waiting or in need of a new song, we would love to pray with you and encourage you. Come, get prayer with our prayer minister or come find me or Father Aaron or another leader after the service and we'd love to talk with you. We are all poor. We are all needy. May the Lord not de delay to deliver us. Amen.